Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Jennifer at Nyer coming to us from North Carolina, and we have some exciting content to talk about centered on the cognitive benefits of physical activity. What a fantastic subject, and I imagine this is your your passion, your life's work, so I'd love to hear more. Yeah, that's great, Brad. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to you about it. So we hear uh, kind of vague notions that it's so good to get out and exercise, and uh, we have this uh, subjective sensation of feeling better. You just told me you got back from a great ski trip, and you're happy. You're in a positive disposition, uh, thanks to being out there in the beautiful mountains. And uh, I feel the same, of course, and it's such a centerpiece of my life. But I think now we're getting stuck into all these patterns of uh, modern human behavior, especially with digital entertainment. And we're kind of missing that link, which was previously automatic. We didn't have to think about it because we were out there chopping wood in the forest and having a physical outdoor lifestyle, which now we can basically choose out of uh, to our great detriment. So I'd love to hear more about the, the pros and the cons, really, of, of getting out there and then what happens when you're not out there in nature. Sure. Well, we, we've been doing a lot of work um, trying to understand better how both single sessions of exercise and also a more lifestyle commitment to exercise can benefit cognitive performance. And the work I do, I mean, I think it's the most fun job in the world. I'm, I'm trying to answer this question um, across the lifespan. So we do a lot of work with kids. We do work with college-age students. Um, but then we also have some important work we're doing with middle-aged and older individuals. And what we find is maybe what you'd expect, Brad, and that is that both a single session of exercise and a more lifestyle commitment to exercise can benefit your cognitive performance. The single session happens more because of sort of the body's immediate response, right? So you're, you're challenging the body with a physical stimulus, the body's responding, and the nature of that response benefits cognitive abilities and thinking abilities, memory abilities. The long-term exercise can actually result in structural changes to your brain that then can benefit your cognitive performance even in the absence of exercise for a day or two, right? So it's more of a long-term, uh, it's, still a, it's still a response to the physical stimulus, but then you're getting this long-term benefit that can actually stick with you if you have to take a day or two off from your exercise regime. Or I imagine a, a, a month or two, you, you have a fitness lifestyle. Um, it, it's going to be you know, years of, of building on this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, there's some really neat research that shows that people who are physically active in their young adult um, hood can actually have benefits that will persist with them, even if they've been inactive for a, a longer period of time. Um, now, we don't know much about sort of where, where's the sweet spot, right? So, so the folks who are thinking, hmm, maybe I could just exercise for a year or two and then just sort of coast for the next 20. It probably doesn't work like that, right? But I do think, I mean, it's really interesting to think about sort of the benefit of exercise for children, for instance, whose brains are developing anyway. Um, so you add exercise to that, this stimulus that then may enhance the kind of brain growth and brain health that they're experiencing in a window of time when it's really open to that, right? And so I think, um, you know, when you think about exercise for kids, I'm just such an advocate of trying to get physical activity back into the schools, trying to get kids engaged in physical activity, 
because I believe that the benefits that can have for brain health could then be very long lasting and could have this really important impact for them. Yeah, it's such a topic near and dear to my heart. I used to run this charity called Running School. Get it? Running School. Ah, so we'd go nice. into the schools and we'd promote these. We'd put on this wonderful uh, special event day of a, a fitness obstacle course. And then we'd actually time them for the um, the fitness gram, the national uh, standards for mm -hmm. uh, distance running. Uh, so, you know, we'd greet groups of uh, classes, grades out on the field and have all this fun and was designed to kind of uh, keep the dream alive when we weren't there. And um, at my own kid's school, I orchestrated even further things like this morning mile where when the first bell rang, uh, the principal agreed that the first five minutes of the day, um, everyone would drop it and uh, run around campus on this trail that we built. And it was really wonderful. And the news came out and filmed what this great thing's happening at this elementary school. And then over time, uh, I think some adult uh, influence is definitely to be credited here. Uh, things start to slip away uh, around the cracks, and one kid skinned his knee and was bloody and had to go to the go to the office. And so, you know, the teachers start to become concerned about safety. And if we didn't have enough adult monitors, then we'd have to cancel it that day. And then, of course, all the objectives to cover in the lesson planning uh, started to pinch. Uh, perceived that they they didn't have enough time to run uh, before they, they got into their seat in the morning because otherwise they're going to fall behind with their, their math units. And it was, it was kind of a, um, a tragic thing to see. And you see it on, on all levels, not only in, you know, at the industrial level in the school systems, but uh, in the home where, uh, you know, leading by example and you have sedentary parents, it's just going to kind of vaporize from culture where anyone in a certain age group over what anyone over 40 or 37 or something can reference this time where there was no uh, connectivity and, and entertainment with the mobile device. And we were uh, constantly outdoors playing uh, every single day. Yeah, that's fun, Brad. You just took me on this little roller coaster. I was all excited about what you were talking about with the trail and the enthusiasm from the kids and they're out there being active. And, you know, it's a shame that the school let the other um, you know, the challenges of maintaining that rule the day, right? Because if they had given it a chance, what they would have likely seen is that the academic performance of the kids improved, because that's what we see when we look at it in research settings. If you expose those children to physical activity in the morning, and then they come into the classroom, they will learn better. They will pay attention better. They will remember more. In fact, one of our research studies that we did that I, I thought was really fun, we used the timed mile that they do for a fitness test in physical education as our exercise in a, in a research study we were doing. So the children were asked by their physical educator to run a mile. And as they came off in little groups of three or four, as they'd kind of finish in a group, we'd pull them over and we'd say, we'd like you to do this memory task. And they would do the memory task with us. And then 24 hours later, we would see how well they remembered the material we had taught them. Well, the kids who ran the mile, and then, so I should say, and then another group, they were going to do the mile run, but we did the memory before the mile run. So everybody's going to run, but some kids we did memory before and some kids we did memory after. Well, the kids who did the memory task after the run remembered everything better 24 hours later. So it helped them to, to well, we don't know, to be honest, we don't know if it helped them to bring the information in, to store it and consolidate it, or to recall it the next day. But regardless of exactly the mechanism, 
we know that they did better 24 hours later than the kids who had been uh, had done the memory task, uh, had, had done the memory task and then run after. So the run didn't help them with remembering the, the task. Wow. Even at the acute level, that, that uh, insight is amazing. And I remember uh, when we were, you know, submitting for grants and gathering the data about how important activity was for kids, there was this really great graph. I think it was uh, data pre- prepared by the Kaiser Family Foundation, you know, Kaiser, the, the insurance uh, carrier. Mm-hmm. And they had the, uh, the level of fitness of the youth and then the level of performance on the standardized state uh, educational mm. tests. And it was mm-hmm. like the two lines were stuck together all the way. In other words, <laughs> right. the fit kids excelled at their, uh, at their testing and the kids who were unfit also had poor scores in academia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know they go together. And then I guess, you know, to, to sort of express the, the lifestyle interest that I have, the work that we're doing now, we're, uh, we're doing a study that's funded by the National Institutes of Health. And we're looking at adults who are 40 to 65 years of age and they have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. So either a parent or two grandparents, you know, something along those lines with dementia or, or, or they know it to be Alzheimer's disease. And we're randomly assigning them to either exercise for a year or to maintain their normal lifestyle for a year. And they're sedentary to start with. So we imagine the sedentary folks will stay sedentary. And the ones that we give exercise to, we're going to we're going to change them into being regular exercisers. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of brutal, Jennifer. I, I'd be like, you know, you're, you're, you're I'd start to like uh, get antsy by March first, thinking like, dang, I'm in the control group. I, I feel yeah. like I'm missing out. And uh, I guess you know, if you're going to sign up for a study and you're already sedentary, uh, we're we're looking at a, a gold mine of uh, research research yeah. data to their well, to their do, detriment. I, I agree with you, Brad, though. Um, but, but we do at the end of that year, we give them a short-term YMCA membership. So we, we uh, hope that they'll just sort of stick with what you're normally doing for a year. And then at the end of that, we're going to try to get you to be physically active and give you the, the tools and the, and the um, access that you need to start being physically active. But what we expect to happen is that we expect to see differences in brain structure over the course of that year. And we're also going to look at a person's genetic risk for Alzheimer's. So you have a family history but you may also have inherited the genes that are predictive of Alzheimer's from your parents. So we're going to try to find out, does physical activity still benefit those folks who also have a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's disease? And based on previous work, that's what we expect to find. But it's just so, it's so exciting to me because you take somebody who's 40 to 65 and sedentary, right? They may have been sedentary their whole lives. We believe that by getting them on a regular activity program three days a week, just some strength training and some walking at a moderate intensity that we can change their brain health, help them perform better cognitively, and perhaps give them some degree of protection against Alzheimer's disease. Wow. I mean, seems reasonable because uh, they're now calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. Uh, Suzanne mm-hmm. Delamonte, Brown University, coined that term, and it's been, been widely appropriated now because Alzheimer's is characterized by dysfunctional glucose metabolism in the brain. And we know that exercise has a huge contribution to your ability to, to process glucose and avoid type 2 diabetes. Forget about type 3. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're um, you know, a neat part of the study is that we're taking blood samples. We're going to be able to look at some of these um, various biomarkers that have been associated with Alzheimer's disease. We're also going to be looking at um, some various kinds of neurotrophic factors that have been associated with exercise. So if you've seen the animal literature, the animal literature um, suggests this that this neurotrophic factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, 
might be really important as a mechanism to explain why exercise benefits uh, performance in, in animal models, right? And so people have been starting to look at that in humans as well. And there's some preliminary evidence that suggests that might be a mechanism. So I guess from a layman's perspective, the mechanism is you go out there and exercise and you're increasing your oxygen use and, and blood circulation. And like all organs that benefit from exercise, I guess the brain is, is tagging along, but um, unlike the bicep muscle that gets bigger and bigger lifting the weight, maybe you can explain a little bit what that connection is believed to be. Yeah, you know, what, what we think it has to do with, if you, if you almost think of it like a garden, right? If you think of your brain sort of as a garden, then these neurotrophic factors might be helping to increase sort of the density of the garden. So the synapses, the neurons, and making it a more healthy garden. But you also have neurotrophic factors that help with sort of pruning away the dead material. So if you, if you can sort of thinking of, 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 the, of a healthy brain as a beautiful, dense garden, the denser, the better, but you also don't want dead, decaying matter. So the, the neurotrophic factors can go in and sort of snip away and clean out and prune and make it so that it's really efficient and, and highly functional. Uh, how does this line up with our uh, suggestion to make sure we do enough Sudoku and, and crossword puzzles as we age? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Um, the literature on that is a little bit tough because it's such a, how do you say it? It's, it's, it, it, it's exercise is hard. It's hard to quantify exercise. It's hard to say you need this much and everybody has to do this much in this dose. But you talk about crossword puzzles or Sudoku, it can get even more hard to sort of quantify that. What I think is really interesting, Brad, is to think about trying to do two things simultaneously. So there's some animal research that shows that if animals do cognitively engaging movement, that they will get better brain health responses. Well, I think that's really interesting when you apply it to humans. So if I walk on a treadmill with no stimulation, looking at a blank wall, <laughs> I'm getting only physical activity. I'm not getting any cognitive stimulation. Right, right. But if I walk outdoors and so am interacting with the environment, whether it's an urban environment or a rural environment, but I'm interacting with the environment, I put somebody next to me and I'm walking with them while carrying on a conversation, right? Now I've got some cognitive challenge. I've got to watch where I'm walking. I've got to look for whatever it might be, traffic, or to watch trails to make sure I don't miss a turn, and I'm having a conversation, then what I think is really neat to think about is how that might have even a bigger benefit. The obstacle course that you talked about, what a great idea. I mean, it's engaging and fun, and we love that about it. Makes it more motivating for kids to, to participate. But also, there's cognitive challenges that they're having to, there's, there's problems they're having to solve that are challenging the brain while they're also physically challenging their body. Yeah, it's it's reminding me of this uh, recent trend to kind of rethink the notion of cardio and the place it has in a fitness program. This is kind of an aside, but I'd love to talk it with you a little bit because I've been really thinking about, uh, you know, rethinking the role of cardio in my own training program. I'm a longtime uh, endurance athlete from old times in triathlon. So a lot of straight ahead pedaling of the bike, swimming and running and keeping that habit my whole life. And I've done steady state 
comfortably placed cardio, you know, most every morning. It's been part of my routine. I get the dog and we go for a jog. But lately, uh, for whatever reason, like I kind of had an epiphany or, or, or from boredom or from lack of distinct competitive goals in, in endurance events, uh, I now enjoy mixing up this uh, experience with <clears throat> jumping drills, balance, flexibility, mm-hmm. mobility, lunges, mm-hmm. squats, jumping up and down off the tree stump, uh, doing a set of pull-ups, and then continuing on with my uh, my, my forward progress and and doing a, a co- covering ground, uh, but not being so beholden to this steady state cardio that can get kind of boring. And some of the physiology is saying like, look, you're going to get a cardiovascular benefit from all manner of different exercise. Even when you go in the gym and go through the weight machines, your heart rate is going to be well above, it's going to be double resting heart rate, even when you're sitting on the bench recovering before you hit the next machine. And so the overall experience of being in the gym for 30 minutes, you're getting a great cardiovascular benefit, uh, but it's, it's totally distinct from a steady state cardio and now I'm going to, you know, sort of th- throw it to you. Like, does the type of exercise uh, matter? And what's your opinion on uh, th- that kind of uh, mixture yeah. of what, what we choose to do? Well, the, the honest truth, Brad, is that we don't know enough about that yet. And what you threw out there, that's, that's like 30 different studies, right? Because all these, all these different, you know, all these different forms of movement, which all could be beneficial. And as you mentioned, all are challenging the homeostasis of the body. So the body is responding, right? Um, Most of the research that's been done has been with steady state cardiovascular, usually moderate intensity exercise. But there are um, a number of studies being published recently that are looking at high intensity interval training, for instance, as a way to benefit cognition. And for the most part, it's at least as good and sometimes better than the steady state cardiovascular exercise. It I think a lot of it depends, you know, two things I want to point out are a lot of it depends on the individual you're talking about. Mm. So you wouldn't ask somebody who is sedentary to start doing high intensity interval training, right? So, so if we're starting with people who are sedentary, we're usually going to start with moderate intensity, steady state. Now, as you build up from that and have a base, if you wanted to switch to different forms of physical activity, you will likely get the same cognitive benefits. And the big thing for me is Brad, sort of what you said initially, like, whether you're getting bored with it or whatever it was, you've been doing it for decades, you're mixing things up to keep yourself engaged uh-huh. so that you're having fun, so that you want to stick with it. And sticking with it is the key, right? So <laughs> if you like swimming, swim. If you like running, run. If you like walking, walk. If you like CrossFit, do CrossFit. You know, it's to me, it's like do something that you can stick with because it's the long-term exposure that's going to give you the most enduring and biggest benefits. Yeah, that's a fun answer to give to live lecture audience when they're saying, what's the best kind of workout? Yeah. Uh, and, and I usually go, well, what, what's your favorite? Oh, I love CrossFit. Guess what? CrossFit is number one with a distant <laughs> second, whatever you like second. Yeah, so that that's well said. Um, I'm kind of poking around and finding that the uh, the, the BDNF, which is now getting you know rock star status, you can see it in all kinds of articles. Uh, but a lot of times it seems associated with low intensity cardio, uh, versus, uh, the explosive, uh, exercise. Uh, but you're proposing that these brain benefits and are, are accrued, uh, in a variety of ways. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, you know, I, it's, it's funny. I've been studying this for, like you mentioned early on, I've been studying this for decades. I still feel like there's way more that we don't know than that we do know, you know, we're still really in our infancy in terms of understanding 
what the best answer is to those kinds of questions, right? Um, if you are talking about somebody who is very comfortable doing moderate intensity exercise and you want to see what kind of a benefit they might get from a single session, then my guess is you should probably give them a little higher intensity than what they're used to if you want to see a better response, right? It's, it's you know, it's the idea of sort of, again, challenging the homeostasis. So if, if walking at moderate intensity is, is easy for me and I do it every day, then if I want to see a, a bigger benefit on that day, I probably need to do a little bit more. But if doing a little bit more is going to cause me to pull a muscle or going to cause me to think, oh, this is too much, I don't really want to do this and I'm going to quit forever, then that was a bad choice, right? So it's, it kind of depends on the question you're ans- asking. You know, if you're asking about the benefits of a single session, there is some evidence from a couple of papers that suggest higher intensity exercise is better for a single session. But they're not doing that with somebody who's been sedentary. They're doing that with somebody who's relatively trained and fit and then saying for that person, a higher intensity exercise looks better. But when we talk about the long term, most almost all of the long term studies where we're talking like six months to a year have been moderate intensity exercise. And that's partly because I don't want to lose my participants because they (laughs) pulled a muscle. Right. Like I need you to stay with this for a year. So I can't make it CrossFit. I can't make it high-intensity interval training. I've got to keep it at a level where you're not going to get injured. You're going to stick with it, and we're going to get this accumulated benefit. Well, that's, yeah, interesting. And I think there's plenty of um, anecdotal evidence with the you know extreme fitness enthusiast that's not overdoing it because we know that's a whole big disaster, and it can cause uh, you know chronic overproduction of cortisol, which can totally yeah. mess with your brain function. Uh, but yep. the people who live that fitness lifestyle uh, have you know a lot of great stats to report, um, regardless of you know the, the intensity level. But yeah, so I guess for a, an immediate benefit, when you uh, challenge yourself a little bit beyond your template. Um, what's, what's happening are some magical hormones and neurotransmitters being produced from the, from the challenge of the workout. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, people haven't been looking at it closely enough. When we've looked at BDNF, what we have found is that that slightly higher intensity is better. Um, and it's for memory, right? We're really looking at memory tasks right now. So, you know, a a lot of people, there are a lot of labs who are looking at executive functioning, which you're probably familiar with Brad, where it's this higher order cognition. It's your ability to, um, no, I'm, I'm like, totally unfamiliar. I'm, I'm trying to get there every day, but I keep getting distracted. <laughs> and the executive function is to, Oh, come on, let's go kick into executive function. Come on already. I know you're there. I know you can do it. Yeah. Well, executive function is like an umbrella term. That's like working memory, your ability to inhibit, um, habitual responses so that you can do something that's more important or more prioritized. Um, your ability to plan and problem solve. Those are all examples of higher order executive functioning. Um, and, and so there's a separate literature that's focused on that. And it, it does show that high intensity interval training can be effective. It shows that moderate intensity exercise can be effective. Similarly, when we look at memory, kind of the same thing. We'll see evidence for high intensity. We'll see evidence for moderate intensity. It's really, it's really I think you said it best, Brad. You know, if you, if you sort of think about what your normal template is for performance. If I'm a college student and I have a big test tomorrow that I need to study for tonight, then I'm going to exercise at a slightly higher level than my normal today Mm. prior to studying, because I think that will give me the biggest benefit for tomorrow. A a little bump as the drug addicts say. A little bump. Yeah, that's it. That's it. A little above that tolerance level, right? Right. But uh, not too much. You made that point. Not too Um, much. Because then I guess you're dealing with... um, 
you know, a recovery uh, mode, which I don't know if it takes away from brain function. I think it does in my case, like I, I report all the time since I uh, modified my sprint workouts to be less stressful <clears throat> with more recovery between efforts and then waking up the next day feeling better. Um, I, I don't have these crash and burn periods where I feel like crap in the afternoon and I need a nap. Um, Dr. Craig Marker, he wrote this wonderful article called Hit Versus Hurt on breakingmuscle.com, mm. hit being the high-intensity interval training and hurt being high-intensity repeat training so that mm. you're not uh, giving yourself a workout that's depleting and exhausting, which is implied by uh, by high-intensity interval training. You're going again before you've had quite enough rest. And with high-intensity repeat training, you're taking the extensive rest you need, and then you're going out and doing an explosive effort again, whether it's kettlebell sings or sprinting. Uh, but he says, if you overdo it in the context of these really uh, difficult workouts, you're going to have uh, byproducts of uh, muscle damage, ammonia toxicity in the bloodstream, which the brain cells are especially sensitive to. And I'm reading the article going, oh gosh, that was me. You know, I, I felt like a badass yesterday morning at the track because I was pumped up. The adrenaline was flowing. I did my repeats. I, I toughed it out for two more, uh, two more reps at the end. I, I high-fived my training partner. And then 36 hours later, I'm looking at my computer screen and I'm, I'm zoning out. So uh, that's a that's a nice uh, takeaway yeah. is that you, you challenge yourself just enough, uh, but, you know, balance stress and rest and all that other great stuff. Yeah. Well, we're, we actually have um, a little bit of work that we've done that looks at sleep deprivation. Mm. So, um, you know, the way, the way you were just talking, Brad, if you sort of think about um, a person as having resources, right, those resources, if you, if you overextend the resources, then performance the next day is not going to be there for you. Well, sleep deprivation is already tapping resources. So we're trying to understand better, how do you add exercise to sleep deprivation in a way then that is the right stimulus, but it probably needs to be lower now, right? So if you're sleep deprived and your resources are already depleted, even if you're used to higher intensity exercise, you might need to cut back because otherwise the exercise is going to do you in, is going to put you over that edge, right? So you want to you almost, you know, you have to, you have to, as an, as an athlete, which you're talking about, Brad, you have to really know your body to know how much do I need so that I'm stimulating, but not overdoing it. Right. I'm not getting into this overtraining or overreaching or starting to go towards burnout. Right. I'm not going in that direction. I'm just going in that, that nice place where I'm stimulating and then giving time to rest and recover, stimulating, rest and recover. And the same thing is true for the cognitive performance. When we're talking about the single sessions, right. When mm. we're talking about single sessions. Um, the same is true for cognitive performance in what, what way? In that you wouldn't want to, you don't want to over fatigue, right? So mm -hmm. you don't want to do, so, so I'm saying that high intensity, interv uh, high intensity interval training might, might be good for cognitive performance the next day, but only if that's a slight bump for you, mm, not if right. it's a, not if it's an overreach for you, right? Right. So if you're used to training at whatever, 80% intensity, and you're going to bump it up to 85% of your heart rate max or 90% of your heart rate max, that's probably fine. But if you're used to 60 and you go up to 85 or 90, that's going to be too much. And it's likely to have a negative impact on your cognitive performance as well. So you're, um, you're, you're doing some great research in this field where we have a huge, massive problem. Uh, the increasing rates of cognitive decline, it's such a tragic way to, uh, to, to, to finish off life for, for everyone involved, including the individual as well as the family members. Um, how do we correct course here in comfortable, sedentary, driven modern life? What, what can be some things that we can uh, you know, put into action immediately? 
Yeah, well, I'm a huge advocate just for walking, Brad. I mean, if you've, if you've been sedentary, if you have a sedentary job and a, and a sedentary lifestyle, you know, the first step is really just to start walking. And, you know, if you, if you live in a neighborhood where you can get outside and walk, then that's fantastic. If you don't, um, I mean, COVID has made things hard, right? But normally I would say you could go to a mall and walk indoors and be somewhere safe to walk. You could go to a local high school and walk on their track a lot of places. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to be creative about figuring out ways that you can walk. And hopefully most people can do that straight out of their own home because then it's, that's the easiest, right? But the, yeah. the big thing is to pick something you like and stick with it. So if it's, you know, if it's going to a gym and working out, if it's working out in group exercise, if it's calling your neighbor and asking them to walk with you, whatever you can do to get yourself to do it regularly is what you should do. It's like you said, that's, that's the best one. And I think it's really important to make a commitment to somebody else, right? So um, I have a friend who uh, walks on Sundays religiously. She moved away from North Carolina and she uses that walk to talk with her friends on the phone. Wow. So there's a, there's a commitment to the friends. You know, you're going to talk with them from 10 to 11 on Sunday and you're all going to do it even in your different places in the world while you're walking. So, you know, that, that's a way that actually devices could help us to do a better job of being physically active because we can communicate with our loved ones or friends while we're being physically active. Love it. I'm also, any chance I get, I uh, proclaim the single greatest motivator of all time is to get a dog. And yes. my, my dog companion <laughs> throughout my life, you know, my own personal moods and motivations become virtually irrelevant because the dog's looking me in the eye saying, are we going to go out this morning and, and, and slam it? And, oh, no, I'm too busy. I got too many emails to answer. And there is a point where if you've made a commitment to be a dog owner and you take mm -hmm. that dog from the shelter, from the breeder, and you're going to give it a wonderful life for however many years, you owe it to the animal to give it the, the proper experience, which involves outdoor sniffing and smelling and, and moving and being in nature. And, you know, boy, if, uh, if you can't answer to the dog, then, you know, we got, we got more problems to talk about, but it is another level above your own whims and motivations and willpower and time management and all those things. And it, it never fails. I mean, it, it, unless you can, I don't know about you, but it, if you can look your dog in the eye and say, Hey, I'm, I'm too busy right now. Uh, boy, that's, um, well, no, that, that's a heartbreaking it, thing. It's such a great point too, Brad, because the beauty of a dog is that you can, you can train them when you're going to walk. And then once you've trained them, what time of day you're going to walk, <laughs> they never lose track of time. They will know exactly it is 4.30 and it's time for us to go walk. And they'll put their, their paw in your lap. They'll put it up there again. They'll grab their leash and collar for you and they'll remind you, get off email. Let's go. Right. So I, I love that. I mean, I totally agree. And if, if, uh, if you can find a dog right now, COVID, that is one good thing about COVID. More people got dogs at the start of the COVID pandemic than in, in previous eras. You also couldn't buy bicycles for a long time. I don't know mm. if you knew that. In Greensboro, bicycles were sold out literally sold out. You couldn't get one <laughs> because yeah. COVID did force forces, maybe the wrong word, but it, it, it reminded people of other things that they could do to spend their time when their normal activities had sort of been, been closed down. And boy, I sure hope people stick with it. Those people who got dogs, you're going to go back to work one day, but don't forget the dog. The dog still needs a walk. doesn't matter if you're working from home or from the office, the dog still needs a walk.
<laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I didn't know about the dog stats. I knew that there was no kettlebell for sale in the United States or, <laughs> you know, plates that you put on the barbell were completely sold out everywhere and people were, were bumming on my back. But the dog stat is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I wonder like when we return to normal, you know, all these people that fleed their urban, you know, we're getting out of San Francisco. We bought a home in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it's great. <laughs> it's a wonderful quality of life. And then is everyone going to get called back and all, uh, you know, are the dogs going to get, get hosed? and everything else it's yeah it's interesting because um you know most people that i know had lives that were so insanely busy and they were running from one thing to another and everything got shut down at the same time for all of us or approximately the same time and so people figured out new ways to, to interact with their family members with their dogs with their friends with their neighbors we've we've met a lot more neighbors during this covid pandemic than we knew before because it feels like everybody's outside <laughs> everybody's outside walking because there's nothing else to do. But I hope, I really hope people will stick with that. I mean, there's so much value in sort of a simpler life and there's so much value in not running all over the place, running all these errands and I don't know, go, going, going shopping when you could be walking at a park. You know, I hope, I hope people will, will find and, and retain the value in that even when life does go back to normal. Yeah. Well said. I, I try to focus on the positive too. And that's one of the things that's been clear with, uh, the quarantine is, yeah, more action uh, on the trails and outdoors, especially with mm -hmm. families. And um, boy, yeah, we just keep that momentum going, even when we have the returned ability to, to to zip around in our cars. Yeah, well, and and just walking, you know, to get back to where we started, Brad, just walking for thirty minutes a day helps your brain health. And if you are middle aged, so let me say let me say this so that people listening will hear. If you have um, the genetic predictors for Alzheimer's disease, your brain looks less healthy when you are 20 years old than if you do not have the genetic predictor for Alzheimer's disease. So you already are at risk. Now, you're not going to see anything behaviorally because you're 20 and the resources, this garden I was talking about, it's dense, it's beautiful, everything's great. But your brain already looks less healthy than somebody who doesn't have the genetic risk for Alzheimer's. So we all need to be physically active, you know, physical activity in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and your 50s. It is building brain health that is going to help you in advancing age, whether you get dementia or not, because everybody experiences age-related cognitive decline. From the time oh. you're 40 on, we can see decreases in how you perform in laboratory tests, no matter if you have Alzheimer's in your family or not. Is that so? Cool? We, yeah, so we all need to be physically active because we're building brain health that then is going like to make us start from a better point when our body does start to show natural age-related decline. Oh, darn. I'm, I thought <laughs> I could completely bypass Just any cognitive bypass decline it. with my, my sheer force of will. What kind of things do we start declining on past 40? Is, are you talking about reaction time things? Because yep. um, Reaction time right away, it's, the, it's oh. the more complex cognitive things, right? So reaction time, you will see right away. And reaction time is a part of a lot of the tasks that you might be doing. So it, it's always going to be sort of pervasive and have this effect. But everything, problem solving, planning, memory, like all those things, when we measure them in a laboratory, we can see decreases that are age-related that start as young as 40 years of age. It's not pretty, Brad. I'm not 40 anymore. I got to... <laughs> I got to keep, keep active. You know, I got to keep active to maintain that brain health. I want to still be cognitively able when I'm hopefully, you know, alive playing with grandkids and great, great, great grandkids in my eighties. Right. 
Right. You got to visualize those goals with great clarity too. And those are things that are keeping you going. John Asarath, the the great uh, brain training expert, best-selling author, he said that um, his intention is to teach his grandchildren how to ski. And Mm -hmm. he knows how old that's going to be for him. And so all his motivation now, or a lot of it is driven by this distant goal. And I think that's a a good way to to picture it. It's like, look, we we have to kind of... um, uh, you know, envision this reality and how we're going to make yeah. things, uh, you know, less, less painful and less, less, uh, you know, tragic if, if we can take action now. Yeah. I mean, being physically active is an investment in your future, right? It's an investment in your future because it's going to benefit you physically, but from my point of view, equally importantly, cognitively. Mm-hmm. So if you, and, and it's so, it feels like so little to ask, although I know how hard it is for some people, Physical activity has to be a priority in your life so that you can carve out 30 minutes a day, six to seven days a week to get out there and be active. And again, it's, you know, to me, I, I know it's not easy, but I feel like it is accessible, right? You just have to make it a priority. And one of my big hopes is actually that by sharing how important exercise is for cognition, that that could be a driving force for people where other things haven't been as motivating, right? So, you know, I like the way you said it, Brad. If you if you visualize yourself, um, you know, playing mastermind with a grandchild down the road, right? Or playing Clue, or playing a board game, or playing a card game. Like you got to be cognitively with it to be able to do that. And so you've 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 got to stay physically fit because that's going to really help with maintaining that cognitive ability. Have you seen some uh, uh, secrets amongst the? more physically active population versus the, uh, the sedentary population? Like what are some of the, the triggers and the success factors? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that I always think is really interesting is that when you um, sort of ask people about their commitments, sort of how many commitments do you have? Like, tell me about your work. Tell me about whatever else you're, you're you know, taking children to soccer practice. But tell me about your commitments. People who exercise have more commitments than people who don't exercise. So although the number one barrier to exercise is a lack of time, that's a false barrier because the people who are regular exercisers have more commitments than the people who are choosing not to exercise. So it's, it's a false, it's a false narrative, right? So we think about, you know, you think about the things you do in your life and you've mentioned devices. I think devices are one of the biggest challenges that we have because it is so easy to get sucked into your phone and start, you know, reading news stories and looking at people on Facebook and doing Twitter feed and all that. And, and so much time passes. And if you're not walking while you're doing that, <laughs> then, then you're wrong, right? Like you should be listening to a podcast with your phone in your back pocket so that you're being safe and out there walking and, and doing those two things simultaneously. You don't have to give up the podcast, but you do have to get out there and be physically active while you're listening to it. Um, the other thing is really making it a habit, you know, and um, I'm going to tie these two things together, but having a commitment to somebody else. So we talked about a commitment to a friend, a commitment to a dog. Those things can really help, um, but also making it a habit. So if you're going to walk, make it so that you walk at a certain time every day build it into your schedule, consider it a commitment that's just as important as the other commitments that are a part of your day. And once you start doing that, you know, when it becomes a part of your routine, then it's not a conscious decision. 
I'm not deciding, do I want to go for a walk today? <laughs> I don't have to decide because at 5.30 during the week, that is when I go for a walk. There's no decision-making to be done. And I just go. And, and to be really honest, Brad, that's what I do right now. I have a teenage daughter who our commitment to each other is to walk on a regular basis. And so literally at 5.30, I'm going to rush my boys to soccer practice. Their soccer practice starts at 5.30. I'll be back by by 5.35, 5.40. We have an hour and 15 minutes to get our walk in because I have to go back and pick the boys up at soccer practice. But if I don't make that commitment to her and she doesn't make that commitment to me, then it doesn't happen because all of a sudden it's 6.15 or in that hour, instead of walking, it, I fritter it away, right? So it's, it's so important to make a commitment. If you have another person you can make that commitment with and to, then that'll help both of you and also makes that you have some accountability, right? But also to make it a part of your routine. Find that time of day, find what you're going to do, and then make it a part of your routine. And after a few weeks, after a few months, it'll start to be so much of your routine that it doesn't even, it's, it's just who you are. You become an exerciser. There's nothing better than to talk to somebody, you know, if you were to self-describe yourself, are you an athlete? Yes or no. Are you an exerciser? Yes or no. Well, it's wonderful if you can answer that question and say, yes, I am an exerciser. That's part of my identity. It's part of who I am. Right. And if you uh, skip a day, it's uh, anomaly rather than That's um, right. trying to summon up the time, the willpower, the energy, whatever it is. And I, I love how you described like, crossing over that wonderful uh, flowery bridge to the other side where it becomes habit and yep. you don't have to uh, orchestrate the opportunities. And um, I, I remember um, Asaraf made the important point that if, if you're not there right now and you're listening to the show and you're like, gee, Jennifer's right, I need to walk more, um, you can kind of uh, tackle the challenge with baby steps where you're certain to succeed. So if we go away uh, with the listener asking them to walk for uh, five minutes every morning, yes. can you yes. handle that? Five? Yeah. That's it? Of course I can. That's so easy and simple. It's almost ridiculous. Uh, but that that feels like a better approach than um, overwhelming yourself with these daunting goals that sound good on paper. And then you're setting yourself up for failure. Now you're not adhering to it anymore. And the habit potential is uh, diminished accordingly. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Brad, because I keep using 30 minutes because that's a goal. But you're right. That's not where you start, right? If you're sedentary, of course, you're going to start with a smaller goal. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's 10 minutes. I talked to this one lady once, and I just thought this was so clever. She and her husband carpooled to work. And when she decided to become an exerciser, she told her husband to start dropping her off before they got home. So they would they just picked a place, you know, driving to work. They could say, okay, this is about how far I want to walk the first day. He dropped her off and she had to walk home. That's right? commitment right there. That's commitment. And then the next day he dropped her off and then they could start, you know, I just thought, well, that's such a great strategy because then you're not like walking and as you're walking thinking, oh boy, did I, did I turn off the oven? Did I, you know, and you, and you make yourself turn around quicker because you forgot something or, you know, you're just feeling like maybe I'm getting too far and I won't be able to get all the way back. <laughs> but, but she, she figured out like, here's a distance that I know I can manage. Drop me off here. Here's a little further distance. Drop me off here. I just thought that was such a clever idea, such a neat way to, to start being active. 
Yeah, and then the husband, of course, is going to garage the car and then immediately take off and try to get to the halfway point, and then they can have a race That's, or what have I, you and I'll, see yeah, yeah, see yeah, if yeah. they can meet uh, light pole number four or what have you. But That's awesome. Um, yeah, the home is such a vortex of distraction and comfort mm-hmm. and relaxation that um, that's a, that's a huge one. It's just before you before you even go in the door, um, get get your business taken care of. Great stuff. Yeah. which is yeah, which is why a lot of fi- people fitness centers work best for them, right? And they just make it a part of the routine. Yeah. They're on the way yeah. into work or on the way home from work. They stop, and when they stop there, then they do their business. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's... again, for your listeners who you don't have to join a fitness center, a lot of um, a lot of public schools will open their tracks up for people to walk on them. Um, a lot of cities have beautiful areas to walk. So if you can just make it part of your routine on the way home, stop, get, get your walk in, and then go home. Because once you get home, then you're right. It, it's, I love that. A vortex of distractions. <laughs> <laughs> it, it also, um, I, I should put in a plug here for a little bit of tough love. Because um, if you can create ideal exercise circumstances, that's wonderful. And if you can't, we really have to uh, start doing away with all the excuses and realizing that this can happen anywhere. Uh, There was a great runner, one of the greatest runners of all time, really, was a guy named Walter George, and he competed in the 1880s around that time frame. He ran the mile in 412, and that was the world record for something like 30 years. So he was ahead of his time more than any modern athlete. It was a true sensation, and he worked full-time in a print shop and so a lot of his running training was in place. And he invented this thing called the step up where you run and try to uh, clear uh, the opposite knee with your, with your foot. So you're driving your foot up high and you're landing in the same spot. And he'd just run in place uh, as his training uh, and set the world record. So if That's... you don't have an ideal venue, come on, people, just, just make it work uh, with whatever you got, especially if the dog's there. And I love going out with my dog in a snowstorm, rainstorm, whatever it is, not heat. Okay. That example doesn't really apply for the dog, but like when you see it snowing outside and the dog's pawing at the door or pawing at your legs, like you say, that's when you can really like reframe your perspective that we're kind of, you know, capable of being, uh, uh, you know, scaredy cats instead of having that resolve to, to make it a habit and, and you just don't miss your habit no matter what. You know, the other thing that, that I think is a real, uh, a positive thing that came out of the COVID pandemic, so many more people are now adept at using things like Zoom or other forms of joining somebody virtually. And so for a while during the pandemic, <clears throat> my mom and one of her friends and me and my sister, we got together and did boot camp in our houses just with Zoom. We could visit a little bit. We could sort of watch each other. It's this accountability thing again. But it's, I mean, these were people in Tennessee, North Carolina, and Indiana. Oh, and Arizona. We had somebody from Arizona join us too. Just getting together at a certain time of day. Let's just do this boot camp together. And we did it three days a week for a very long time, right at the beginning of COVID. So it's, you know, I think there's, there's all kinds of creative ways. The key is um, to find something that you like and you enjoy and you're willing to stick with. And if that's boot camp in your house, if that's walking in your neighborhood, if that's stopping at a track on your way home, if it's walking at lunch, you know, just find something and start small, take small steps and work up to trying to reach 30 minutes a day, most to all days of the week. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm also interested in 
coaching and you've had some great articles uh, along those lines. I'd love for you to kind of dip into this subject. Uh, you know, I was, a, I was a really enthusiastic participatory coach with my kids sporting experience from the time they were little kids. And then when uh, high school came along, I gracefully transitioned into the stands to cheer <laughs> for the team and let the professionals who were, uh, you know, longtime coaches do their thing. And I think it was, um, you know, it was a challenge. I was trying to maintain that self-awareness of whether I was an overpressurized, you know, classic modern parent who's, uh, you know, kind of distorting the sporting experience. Uh, but I really wanted to, um, you know, to emphasize the right things with all the kids. And um, there's so much going on now that's a little disturbing. And so I wonder, especially with your uh, nice headline, your kid's coach is probably doing it wrong. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's tiptoe into that world for a little bit so we yeah. can get some insights, especially for parents. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I recently published a book that's called Coaching for the Love of the Game. And um, the sad thing is that it came out right in the middle of March 2020. So <laughs> my timing couldn't have been worse. It came out right as all of youth sport shut down worldwide. Uh. Um, but my whole goal with that book was really to remind coaches of the things you were just saying, Brad, which is to remember why you're coaching. You're, you're coaching because you love the game. You're coaching because you love your children or you love children in general. Um, you're coaching because you want to give back to sport. You're coaching because you're a physical activity advocate. Um, you're coaching for all these positive things. So then why is it that the minute you step on the field, winning is the only thing that matters, right? Like how, what happens between you, you saying, yes, I'll volunteer to coach <laughs> and you getting out there with the kids. And then all of a sudden you're screaming and yelling at the kids and turning it into a military style experience that they don't enjoy and they, <laughs> they don't want to play for you and they don't want to play the sport and they don't want to play any sports. You know, that's like the, the worst series of things that happens. Um, because I wrote that New York Times article, I was lucky enough to be contacted by um, a company named Mojo that's just putting out an app that's designed to really try to make life easier for volunteer coaches. Um, and what I'm excited about is that we're not just putting together practices, but putting together practices that are pedagogically and developmentally appropriate for kids. And so it's designed to always remind the coach, you know, that, that the reason you're there is to help these children improve at whatever sport or physical activity it is that you're doing. Winning is a secondary outcome. Winning is something that happens if they're having so much fun and improving so much under your tutelage that they get good enough to deserve to win. You don't win because you want to win. You win as a secondary outcome of having so much fun and putting in so much effort and getting such good coaching that then that's an outcome that becomes a natural extension of your experience. I guess so, our perspective is distorted by high stakes, professional, uh, and all that mythology and, and mysticism around uh, what, these, what these top guys are all about. But I don't, I don't think uh, any of them got there. Uh, focusing on the money potential, the income earning potential. Uh, they were, you know, they were enamored with sports since they were little and, and worked hard and, and loved the game for the right reasons. And then they get immersed into professionalism. And I had that experience myself as a professional triathlete where I had to transition from love of the game and being out there in nature and sunshine to, oh crap, I got sponsors counting on me. I got pressures. I got uh, distorted influences that can pull me off of my, off of my center. And what I learned, and I, I like to share a lot, is when when I was able to stay connected 
with those uh, core purposes, that, that pure for- force of motivation, where I wasn't motivated by money, glory, or kicking ass on a, a person I had a beef with, um, I was able to make the best training decisions and compete to the best of my ability. And when I got sucked into um, overpressurized experience, taking myself too seriously, that's when I would make the bad decisions and uh, succumb to pressure, tension, anxiety, nerves, all those things. So um, we're, we're definitely onto something here, but it's it's like a constant battle every single day to to recheck your priorities, huh? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I guess it's counterintuitive in some ways, you know, like I think mm. people believe that the way that you're going to win is to focus on winning. That's that's <laughs> so far from the truth, right? Focusing on winning doesn't give you any direction whatsoever, right? The way The way to be successful is to enjoy what you're doing so much that you're willing to put in the extra time, so mm. much that you're willing to train at 100%, so much that you're willing to take critical feedback from coaches. You know, you, you have to love it. And if you love it, and you get all the right input that you need, then you have an opportunity to be successful. But the way that I would define successful is by performing better than I did yesterday, right? So if, if every kid, and soccer is the sport that I, I played the most and coached the most, if every kid on my soccer team improves over the course of the season, I don't care if we lose every game. Because next year, those kids are going to come back and play for me again. And we're going to improve again. And as we improve, we're going to be going up. And all these other teams are going to be staying flat and they're going to be losing players and they're going to be getting worse. And we're going to keep improving and keep improving. And if we stick with it, then ultimately we're going to start winning games, which is fun. I know it's fun, but it can't be the reason we're out there, right? If we're out there to win games, then that doesn't give us any direction about what we need to do to win games. You don't win just because you want to win. You win because you're, you're, you're passionate about your sport and you're committed to your sport and coaches who know that will foster that in their kids instead of always focusing on the outcome. And when you foster that in your kids or your athletes, then they will give you and the sport their all. And when they do that, then you're going to put yourself in a position where you have an opportunity to be successful. Yeah. I like how you, you you give permission to want to go out there and be successful and want to win. And it's okay. Cause I think I've seen yeah. like the, the seesaw tip, uh, push in, in both directions to, to the detriment of, uh, uh, the participants. In other words, um, people who are so averse to, um, you know, a, a proper competitive experience that everyone gets a trophy. You're probably used mm. to familiar right. with Ashley Merriman's work where it's like, uh, you know what? The kids are smart enough to know uh, what's going on. And I remember making a big scene at the local community soccer meeting uh, where one of the coaches proudly stood up and says, well, you know what we do when we're blowing out another team is I have a special signal to my goalie uh, to allow them to let in a goal so that the other team will feel like, uh, you know, something special and the parents can cheer and they're not so upset that it was 11 to nothing. And I stood up and I'm like, excuse me, are you effing kidding me? Because if you do that to my team, I will march them off the field and you can win by forfeit instead of by 11 to nothing or whatever. I go, I tell my kids, you know, keep playing hard, keep focusing on improvement, whatever. And guess what? If you get blown out, that's part of life. And that can be, you know, a, a positive growth experience. And I, I had a great platform to speak on because my girls team that year, um, we kept a rough count of the goals and it was about 120 to one. We had one goal the entire season. It was the first game of the year. So little did we know losing eight to one was our te- our, our season highlight. <laughs> the, and then the rest of the time mark. we got blown out. Yeah. But it's like, look, you, you know, that that's a 
complete distortion of, uh, you know, what it's all about there. And it's just as bad as the values of obsessing with winning, uh, of, you know, faking the competitive experience. I don't know if you can counter me if you have a a different opinion there, but I just, I just blew up in the back of the room. I just, and I can't accept that. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand, man. I don't want a fake goal. And oh, by the way, he goes, oh no, you don't understand. Uh, the signal was really secret and no one could tell what was going on. I go, I'll tell you when everyone could tell what was going on is Tuesday morning at the drinking fountain at middle school. When one (laughs) kid from that team says, oh yeah, well, we let that goal in. You really didn't get anything off us. That's when all the, you know, all this stuff comes out in the wash. Well, it's, it's tricky, right? I mean, I, my, my boys team right now is on a team that we're not winning games, you know? And so the coach, it's the coach's responsibility then to keep their focus on what matters. And I personally don't care if we lose 10 to nothing, 11 to nothing, it doesn't matter to me, but it is hard on the kids. And so I do wish, I do wish that we had systems in place that would keep games more competitive when they're lopsided. So for instance, if that team is winning, is beating my team badly, I wish that there were rules in place that would say, hey, if you don't have many kids, could you just pull one off and play a player down to make it more competitive, but still try hard, still try hard, but let's just even the playing field just a little bit. In volleyball, volleyball is a great example. When they're in middle school and kids learn how to do an overhead serve, some games can just be serve, a serve, a serve, a serve, a <laughs> Nobody is getting any better. Mm. nobody is getting any better. One kid is getting to practice her serve and that's it. So in my mind, the rules should be changed. She can serve twice, but if they're aces, then we rotate. Or if they're aces, then we have a side out with no change of points. Something so that this team that has the great servers gets a chance to play the game. Something so that that team that can't even get something back, you know, maybe you change it. You can do two or three serves overhead. If they're aces, then the next serve has to be underhand. If it's an ace, then you rotate. Just something to make it so that the children are actually benefiting from the competition, right? Why are we playing the games? Is it just to see who's going to win or lose? Or is it an opportunity for coaches to teach kids how to compete? And if that's what it is, then why don't the leagues adjust the rules so that you don't do a mercy rule? Don't say the game's Uh, over. That's not what I'm saying. uh I'm saying just change something. The the mercy rule is is common. common. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The baseball game's over if they're up by 10 runs in the sixth inning or whatever. Why would you do that? Yeah. (laughs) Who does that help? Heartbreaking. It it just adds on to the pain that you lost not only only badly, but by the mercy rule. Yeah. 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 So changing those, especially in youth sports. Yeah. In in baseball, why don't you put a kid on on the team that's getting blown out, put a kid on first base. Now the defense has to deal with a base runner. Put a kid on second base. Let them deal with a base runner. Let them improve. They're not going to catch you. And if they did, who cares? Right? I yeah, mean, right. Just, you'd, have, you'd have parent the parents protests, care. You, know? you would. The parents yeah. care as if it matters. Yeah. As if it matters. You know? Yeah. It matters to the parent, I guess. It matters to the parent. Yeah, yeah it does. I, I, I don't I, know. I, I am a big proponent of, you know, like when I was teaching my kids how to play ping pong for the first many years of their life, I played left-handed. Right. I just want to keep the ball in play, but I, I want to feel like I'm trying hard so that you can see on my face that I'm trying hard. I don't tell them I'm playing left-handed. I didn't tell them that. They, were <laughs> they didn't even notice. No, they don't know. They don't know. You, you served them lemonade after with your right hand and, yeah, and whooped them left hand. Yeah, we're just trying to make it competitive, you know, because yeah. that's how we both have fun. 
and and I can improve left-handed and you can improve playing with your with your dominant hand. You yeah, know? I used to play these epic one-on-one battles with my son in basketball and the rule was I was not allowed to use my height directly mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. to to score because I maybe could have scored at will when he was a little guy. Um right. and so I would have to take a shot instead of just back him down and make another layup. Um, my favorite example of, uh, you know, honoring that competitive experience with sportsmanship uh, came from, well, he's uh, the late coach Ralph that, that coached my son in high school basketball. And we were playing the same team for the third time of the season, uh, two blowouts previously. And so he got the team in the locker room and, you know, already the swagger and the, and the talking's coming out, like maybe I'll go for my career high, whatever. And he right. says, okay, so here's the starting lineup. And he named the last five guys on the bench. I want you at the one. You're going to play two. And, and everyone's eyes get bug wide in the locker room. The superstars are going, uh, did you say that backwards, coach? Like, <laughs> what the heck? And then right. the five kids who are, who've got the starting nod that, that don't see the light of day in a close game, they were walking out on that court. And believe me, they had, it was like the NBA Finals Game 7. And the coach said, yes. we're, we're counting on you guys, and you're going to bring it 100%. So guess what happened at halftime? Uh, the, the, the dream team was down by, you know, 18 points to the the, the upstart team that we'd blown away. Right. So guess what happens in the second half when the starters come on? They're going to have full gas pedal on instead of goofing around yeah. and enjoying another yeah. blowout because they have to tie that game yeah. and then try to win it. And it was like you walk off the court after that game with 12 players or 14 or whoever played and every single one of them made a fantastic contribution. And I don't think you could get any better than that with sports. So well, plus, yeah. plus they both, both groups are learning something, right? So, I mean, the, the, that basketball team will play teams that are better than them. Now the starting five understands how to come back from being behind. Right. Right. So you've, you've created a coaching experience. You've created a learning experience and hopefully the other team felt like they were respected and had an opportunity to compete. You know, like how great for them to have a half where they're like, there, there are groups of five where we can be successful. So let's, let's build on that for when we play another team where we're more evenly matched. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's a great story, Brad. That's a great story. I love it. Good stuff. Jennifer, you're doing some wonderful work there. I appreciate you getting into all these important topics and the great takeaways so well described about building that exercise habit and aspiring to that amazing 30 minutes a day. You know, <laughs> we could we could laugh and think like, are you kidding? We can't exercise 30 minutes a day, but it is a widespread challenge and we all know what it's like to get too busy and have things slip away and and feel that uh, you know, that frustration, but yeah, let's let's get the um Let's carry the torch for that. How how do we follow you and connect with you further and, and go grab that book that pretty soon we're going to need because you sports are rolling yeah, that's out, right. right? That's right. Yeah, the book's available through Amazon, uh, just through Amazon. It's easy. Uh, Bring Your A-Game is the first book I wrote, and that, that was actually written to make sports psychology skills more accessible to teen and tweenagers. Right. So it's written for adolescents. Um, bring Your A-Game. And then Coaching for the Love of the Game is written for volunteer coaches coaching in any sport. Um, and then my UNCG website, uh, you can find out about our PAD2 study, which is our physical activity and Alzheimer's disease study. Um, we also have uh, PAD2 at, on Facebook. You can find it. It's P-A-A-D, two A's, and then the number two, um, and at UNCG, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. The wonderful University of North Carolina, Greensboro. There you go. Way to Dr. put that Jennifer accent on. That's perfect. Edmier, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening, everybody. 
Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30 month, or adding to your Primal approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.